This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 11. But let's begin in verse 25. We finished talking last week about the woes that Jesus was pronouncing on the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and on Capernaum. And so he moves on and he begins to pray in verse 25. He says, or the word says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And so this is the sort of thing that God has often done to confound the wisdom of the wise, to bring to nothing, to bring to nothing the intelligence, if you will, or the learning of the learned. He says, Thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. This is not a new thing. God's often done that. And I've been convinced that God does it on purpose sometimes. He does it that way on purpose sometimes, and that there's a positive delight to be held in that. If, if you ever talk to somebody that was a know-it-all, or they think that they knew everything, or they were absolutely convinced that they knew everything, and uh, there, was, there was nothing more that they could learn. They always had an answer. They always had uh, a, a comeback or something like that. And then it turns out all their words get turned upside down. And I won't say that God has a habit of doing that, but He's done that quite often. And there's reasons for it. There's reasons for it because among all the many different kinds of idols that can be, have, it can be had and false gods that people can embrace is that of knowledge. There are people that actually, they virtually worship knowledge and they put a, a tremendous premium on it. Knowledge for its own sake, I guess, or for its usefulness, that's fine. That's fine, but there comes with knowledge, and this, it, it's, not because of, it's not because of knowledge itself, it's because of mankind's fallen condition. There comes with much knowledge and much learning and much wisdom, there comes a pride with that. And you see it demonstrated in people in, in secular circles, you see it demonstrated in people out in the world, you see it demonstrated, you see it demonstrated in churches and in religious circles. Someone knows more than somebody else and there develops in within them a pride because of that. Because what they have is uh, perhaps rare or hard to come by or requires a lot of study to get it into their mind. And so there comes a pride with that. It's a sort of a, it's almost an occupational hazard. It's one reason why we've got to stay humble. We've got to stay humble. It doesn't matter if we're packing theological degrees it doesn't matter if, if, we're, if we're packing a, a master's or a PhD, or it would actually be a THD, I think, is a doctorate of theology, isn't it? I'm, I'm not exactly up on my degree names. These degrees aren't wrong. Again, I'm not trying to cast them in a bad light. But there is a risk and a danger of becoming proud of these things. And that's one reason why, it, why God takes a positive delight in turning the natural order, uh, or the, um, for lack of a better phrase, the natural order of things and man's perception, turning it upside down and revealing profound truths 
to the unlearned, or as he says here in, in his language here, in our Lord's language, he says, Thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, unto noobs, unto the spiritually young, or, or, or even, or even the, the naturally young, however it may be. He said, you've hid these things from those that were learned, those that were very intelligent, or, or the, those that, uh, that had all these opportunities to excel in their knowledge. And there are whole cults that have sprung up around the subject of knowledge. The veneration and worship of knowledge. Gnosticism was among the first, but certainly not the only one. So, uh, secular scientism, if you will, and that's a, a, a label I've only recently come across. It's the, it's the absolute embrace of science as the only as the only revelator of truth in all the universe. If science can't explain it, then it's not acceptable, it's not true, it's not believable. So just modern day scientism is just another manifestation of the same old song. But knowledge is only a tool. It's all it is. And the Bible encourages us to be wise and knowledgeable. Jesus said earlier in this same gospel, he said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. He said, learn of me. Well, learning is the acquisition of knowledge. So knowledge is good, but it must never become a basis of pride. And know-it-alls are hard to be around, aren't they? They are. At least they have any kind of a proud spirit, and generally a know-it-all does. Now, there are people that they do excel in knowledge, but they're not proud about it. They're not boasting about it. They have it. They use it. They share it when, when, uh, when they believe that it is productive or helpful to do so. But they're not making a song about it. So here in Jesus' prayer, He says, I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because, because Thou hast hid these things, these truths that He'd just been dealing with, earlier in this chapter, and I think in the chapter before that, he said, Thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and thou hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And, and, and there's another area that I want to go in with this before we move on to the next verse, verse 27, which is kind of a standalone verse. I, I don't actually think that it's part of the prayer. I think his prayer is only verses 25 and 26. But he says, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And one reason that there's a real, there is a real and a satanic danger to falling in love with one's own knowledge. Now, I, I don't like to pull from a variety of sources in our studies and in our preaching. Some of it can be good, but I try to be careful with that because you know, some sources are, aren't always good or right, but they might have a few good or right things in them. There's a real danger. And there's a real danger with Christians, with anybody really, but, but Christians are not exempt from it because if we're, not, if we're not watchful and diligent, then we can fall into the same trap. Because the older that you get in the faith, the more you read your Bible, the more you study the Word, the more you walk with God, the more wisdom, you, well, hopefully the more wisdom you acquire, but certainly the more knowledge you acquire, okay? Wisdom is learned much differently than knowledge. 
Knowledge can just be acquired through study and through learning and through texts and, and by, you know, perhaps watching the lives of others, learning the good and the bad. But wisdom is acquired a much different way. Wisdom abides in a deeper part of the psyche than the knowledge of the mind and of the head. It really does. But the danger of falling in love with one's own knowledge, well, I mean, that carries with it shades of Lucifer, doesn't it? Because Lucifer was incredibly, is incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly intelligent, incredibly beautiful on, on top of that. And, and the virtues that he possessed when he was still Lucifer were considerable. And we don't know a whole lot about it. The Bible only speaks of it here and there a little bit, alludes to some things, is silent on much, okay? But we do know that everything that Lucifer had going for him, and he had quite a bit going for him, Everything that he had going for him, he fell in love with what he was. If you want a picture next to the word narcissism in the dictionary, then it ought to be a picture of him. Because he became aware of his own virtue. He became aware of his own power. He became aware of his own glory and his own beauty. All of these things which were gifts from God. And what that did to him is what it absolutely twisted and corrupted his thinking. And falling in love with everything that he was and he possessed. Well, when anybody becomes like that, and you start feeling like you are complete in and of yourself and you don't need God, and you don't need others. And when you get like that, then, man, there's even there's secular proverbs that are out there in the world and proverbs that are part of cultures that had never known Christianity, and even they recognize the trap in that kind of thinking. Hence the saying, a man full of himself makes a very small package. And so the lesson here to be extracted from this prayer from our Lord, verses 25 and 26, is remember humility. Knowledge is good. Pursue it by all means. Well, not by all means, but pursue it, okay? Please do pursue knowledge. Pursue knowledge of good things, of right things. First of the Word of God. Second of other things that are good and virtuous, okay? Pursue them, but never get proud of your knowledge. Never get proud of your knowledge. Because first of all, God will let you be humbled. He will let you have a run-in with somebody who knows a whole lot more than you and isn't even a Christian. But they're a member of some cult and they actually know their Bible better than you might. You know, Because there are cults out there that study their Bibles more than Christians do. And they do it because they're bound and determined to, to justify their own doctrines and their, only, and their own way of thinking. There are Muslims that engage in the study of the Bible just so that they can discredit it and tear it down. There are atheists that do the same thing. We've got to be knowledgeable, but once we step into that bear trap of pride, what good is that knowledge? I'll tell you what that knowledge becomes. To a, to a person who is proud of their spiritual knowledge, then what they are is absolutely condemned. Because their knowledge will condemn them. Their knowledge will condemn them. Because their knowledge will point to the fact that, hey buddy, you're proud. And they're that much more accountable. They really are. They're that much more accountable. So there is a real danger there. But again, the danger is only there to those who are incautious with their own spiritual state. And there are ministers that have fallen into this trap. 
multitudes of them throughout the last 2,000 years. And before then, ministers of different sorts that have fallen into that. There were priests of the Old Testament that fell into that trap. There were, uh, I imagine there were prophets as well that did because it's a very human failing. It's a very human failing, but it is a very... It's a very dangerous one. I know we've already said that two or three times. It's a very dangerous one. It's also a very damaging one because when we're puffed up with all of our knowledge, then nobody we're talking to cares what we know. It doesn't mean anything to them because the only thing that they're focused on is, my goodness, this guy is as proud as can be. And it's bad enough out there in the world. It's bad enough when you meet somebody who's just absolutely full of themselves and can't be taught anything and, and, and just wants to absolutely drown everyone in their great knowledge all the time. It's bad enough out there in the world, but it can be forgiven more easily out there in the world because sinners are sinners and they're going to be sinners until such time as they repent and are changed. But it's worse. All of the sins... All of the vices, all of the human sins and all of the human vices are worse when they occur within the church, within the Christian life and the Christian framework because it is a known thing. Intuitively, it is a known thing among many unbelievers and by most believers that these sins and vices are absolutely out of their place if they have any place at all which they don't but they're so much more out of place when they occur among believers it's awful it's really really awful it's disgusting let me just square peg round hole this if I can all right there's a there's a proverb that states that um, as flies in the ointment of the apothecary or if flies cause the ointment of the apothecary, apothecary I think is like an ancient term for a, uh, like a, an herbal pharmacy, primitive pharmacy is what an apothecary was. I think some cultures still use that word. It's kind of died out here in, in the Western world. But uh, the proverb states, as flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to give forth a stinking savor, okay? As flies make the ointment stink. That's where that other expression Fly in the ointment. That's where that comes from, is that proverb. So as flies cause the ointment in the pharmacy or the apothecary to stink, so doth a little folly those that are held in reputation. And right now, Canada is choking on living that proverb right now because their prime minister has garnered for himself an outrageous reputation for being an incompetent vacationing buffoon. Now, I'm not politicking. I'm only sharing a little bit of the news. I don't know the man. But everything that I've read has been almost uniformly negative. And this guy, has done some, this guy has done some stuff that has really embarrassed his country. And my heart goes out to Canadians for this. It really does. That and for other reasons. But Justin Trudeau is his name. You know, there's nothing wrong with praying for the Canadian Prime Minister. That'd probably be a good idea. We get, I get awfully focused on, you know, emphasizing pray, praying for our leaders. And we need to. But they're our next door neighbor. Aren't they? I think I'm even pointing in the right direction for once. I'm actually pointing in the right direction. But we need to pray for them too. Because the gospel doesn't have as free a course up there as it does down here. And there's a lot of problems up there. They're, they're worse off even with as much smaller population. I think they have about one-tenth of our population here. They're around 30, 40 million. We're around 300, 360 million here. But they're worse off in some ways up there. But we'll just leave that alone. But... Someone who's held in reputation. 
a little bit of folly, and a little bit of sin will absolutely destroy not only their own reputation, but it will severely damage the reputation of the organization they represent, and it will severely damage the, the credibility of whatever cause they seem to be fighting for. So when a minister sins, what do you think that does? What do you think that does to a church? What do you think it did? What did it do to the church? What do you think it did to the whole body of Christ in the public perception when Jimmy Swaggart fell into scandal back in the 1980s? That was over 30 years. 30, 35, well, I don't remember exactly when that was, but right around, it was the mid-1980s, so over 30 years ago, and that's still fresh in people's minds. Three, three and a half decades, and it's still fresh in people's minds. People don't forget. We can't, and it's not just the big sins, we can't fall into these satanic, these satanic traps of vanity and of pride. Because those two go hand in hand. Vanity and pride. We can't. Just stay humble. Acquire knowledge. Put it to use when it is useful. Share it when it's edifying, and when it's prudent and all of that. But don't ever let yourself get proud. Because it's hard to come back from that. It is hard to come back from that because it's the nature of pride to resist its own cure. Do you know what I mean? Because the cure for pride is to be humbled, but that so often tends to inflame pride all the more. It's like you have to drop an absolute nuke on it in order to thoroughly crucify it. But let's move on. Let's move on. Verse 27 is a standalone kind of a, a verse. He says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. It really does take a kind of revelation to know God. Not to know about Him. There's lots of people know about Him. And this ties back into head knowledge and what we were just talking about, the knowledge acquired from study and all of that. But it really takes a touch from God to know God for yourself. It takes a kind of a revelation. I'm not saying this in the cop-out sense of, you know, well, I can't explain or justify my particular doctrine, and so I'm just going to pass it off as it has to be revealed to you. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Jesus was saying here. He's saying that it is impossible to know God, either the Father or the Son, except it be revealed except it be revealed. And, and that revelation can come from a number of ways. It can come by revelation through preaching. We know that much from the Bible. It says that it has pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so preaching is a core, is, is an absolute core facet of the ministry. If you get rid of that, you're, you're, getting, rid of, you're getting rid of, of one of the, the key implements to salvation. The vehicle by which the word is shared and, and, and by which people come to, to acceptance and belief of the truth. But that revelation can come by way of preaching. It can come by way of teaching. It can come by way of independent or personal study. And it can come by way of a supernatural divine revelation of the Holy Spirit. Because that's another kind of knowledge. We learned about that years ago. There's... there's um, there's, uh, it's not called study knowledge, I forget what the actual term is. And then there's, there's sense knowledge and there's revelation knowledge. 
There's the knowledge gained from our senses through, through sight, hearing, or whatever. Things that we hear and learn. Things that we read and learn. Things that we observe, whatever. That's sense knowledge. And then there's revelation knowledge. And I don't have this in my notes. It just ties into what we're talking about, okay? Revelation knowledge is not acquired through the senses. It is uh, like when Peter said to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Blessed art thou, Peter. Or what did he say? Simon, Bar-Jonah. I forget exactly. He said, blessed art thou. And he called him by his original name, Simon, I think. He said, because this was not revealed to you through men, but this was revealed to you by the Holy Ghost. That is revelation knowledge. There was nothing that Simon had studied then, that he was able to then hold up next to Jesus and say, okay, yep, you're the Son of God. No, it was a divine revelation by the Holy Ghost. And so there are some things that are learned by that. There are some things that are, even though they're recorded in the Word, the understanding of them is revealed by way of the Holy Spirit. That can happen too. It happens a lot, actually. Have you ever struggled with a particularly difficult verse for a long period of time? It's just something you always read over and you're like, I just don't get what that means. I don't understand what he's saying, you know? And so you just moved on and you might have read it a dozen times and it never clicked. And then all of a sudden, maybe on the 13th or 15th or 20th time that you read through it, boom, and it hit you. And it was an actual epiphany. It's not just a word thrown around because your brain subconsciously made a couple connections, but it was revealed to you by the Holy Ghost. And an understanding came. I uh, was speaking with a, a man some years ago, and he shared about how that happened. That happened to him, and he was a minister. He'd been a pastor for years, but there was, there was one verse of Scripture that he just read over and over again, and it just never, the meaning of it never hit him until years and years and years into his life forgotten. It was a verse out of Romans about moving from faith to faith. If you've read that one, and, and I would jump to it, but we've only got about seven or so more minutes, and I don't want to blow my time. But it, there's a verse over there talking about moving from faith to faith. And you're like, okay, well, that sounds nice and poetic, but what in the world does that mean? Well, all right. There's faith that is belief, the understanding that something exists, and then there's the faith that you have in someone because you believe in their actions and you believe in their character and their motives and their word. It's a, it's a trust. That's a faith that speaks of trust. So there's faith that speaks of belief. And there's faith that speaks of trust. And it's, you know, we always start with the former, don't we? Because you have to believe that God is. Or you can't even come to God. So we believe that God exists. That God is real, etc. And then... There's a point where you have to move out of just the merely acknowledging that He exists to actually to, to trusting in Him. And so from faith to faith is from belief to trust. And that's a serious leap. I don't mean it's a big leap. I mean it's a very important leap. It is a critically important leap. It's one that many people never make. But if, if we're going to make it to the kingdom, we have to be in this area here, not just here. At some point, we have got to begin trusting in Almighty God, absolutely, and standing on His Word. I'm not saying that, we're, that we don't, just speaking in, speaking in general, as, as you know, I'm sure you know. Verse 28, new paragraph. So, Jesus has gone from speaking to the Father, 
in his earlier prayer in verse 25. And now he's calling to the people. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. There we go. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this is one of the most wonderful paragraphs that you can find in the entire Bible. This really is. This is definitely up there in the top five, if not the top one or two. This is This isn't man crying out to God. This is God calling out to man. This is the expressed desire right from the heart of God, the Son of God, right to man who is burdened and who is weary and who is heavy laden and is dealing with all of the cares of life because that's what comes with life on the earth. He says, come unto me. He says, come to me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's absolutely no judgmentalism in this. There's absolutely no condemnation in this. There's not even any, there's no, not even any correction or reproof or anything. This is just a, a raw appeal right from the heart of God. He knows what we go through as a species. Because even now, even now, or even though life on earth now is far better than it has ever been in human history. Ever. Not since the garden. In the garden we had it made, granted, okay? But since the fall of man, it's been for, for us as a whole, okay? I'm not talking about the church and the body of Christ, although a lot of this is still on us, okay? The consequences of the curse are lifted, but we still have to work. We still have to do the things that we have to do, and there's still suffering in this life. But ever since the fall, humanity has had to work and labor and fight and suffer and endure illnesses and endure afflictions and endure injuries and and endure heartbreaks and disappointment and just all of the evils and the struggles and the cares of life have rested upon mankind's shoulders since we took of that fruit of that tree and violated the tenets of the Word of God or of God Himself. Ever since then, that's what it's been. And God... The temptation on, man, on mankind part on mankind's part is to as that as that silly song was really that irreverent and borderline blasphemous song back from the 1980s. Uh, if only God was one of us, you know. I remember that one. I couldn't stand that thing. I always wanted to yell at the singer. He was one of us, you know. For like 30 plus years, he was one of us. 33 years, give or take. Don't know exactly where his birthday was in that or or how old he was, but it was about 33 years. He was one of us. He walked on the earth and suffered right along with us and relieved much of our suffering. So that whole whole trap that many people uh, have fallen into about thinking that God is aloof and untouchable and has no idea what it's like to endure a day in the life of a human being, that is a lie of the devil. He does know. He's always known. He always knew what it was like. And then he, even in his knowledge, he went ahead and experienced it for himself in the person of his son. Jesus got up in the morning. You don't think he knew what it was like to be tired? I guarantee you he did. You don't think he knew what it was like to, to, to work and strain his body? We, he grew up, we, we, 
we deduce that he grew up in a carpenter's shop because his father was a carpenter, assuming that his father had a shop. He might, not, he might have been a framer, for all we know, as far as his, uh, his dad was concerned, because they're a type of carpenter, too. They often get identified as wood butchers because there's, you know, measure, cut, measure, cut. You know, it's all math and sawing. You know, there's not a lot of detail work in there, but sometimes there is. It just manifests a little bit differently. But you know, he knew what it was like to to exercise to exercise his his body. He knew what it was like to to suffer through inclement weather. He knew what it was like to feel lonely. I guarantee you, he was probably the loneliest man in the world because he had no peers. He didn't have any. His father was in heaven on the throne. His Holy Spirit abode within him, but you know that's it's not quite the same. That's that's a type of keeping company, yes. But you know, he was a man. You don't think that he knew what it was like to feel lonely? He was an unmarried man. You don't think that he that he knew what it was like for his body to have certain needs? Now, don't let your modesty get shocked here. The Word of God says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. means that he didn't give in to it. But he was still tempted. He was tempted to power, wasn't he? He was tempted in hunger. He was tempted in pride. Not that he was proud, but he was, I'm sure that he was tempted with it. My goodness, at the age of 12, he was confounding the doctors of the law, wasn't he? Hmm. Lesson in there somewhere. Good one, I'm sure. You don't think that there might have been a temptation there. But no, maybe there wasn't. Maybe there wasn't because pride was absolutely contrary to his nature. And so I'm not going to make that as a dogmatic statement. Yes, he was tempted with pride. But if the word says that he was tempted in all ways as we are, then, well, that must, that, that must include that as well because all encompasses everything, doesn't it? So he knew, he knows he knows, he knows, he knows. And with that knowledge, he says, come unto me. Come unto me. And so he's, it's an appeal to the common man and woman to come to Jesus with every single burden that we have to bear. Every single one. And there is, there is burden to living. And we've touched on a few of them. We've touched on a few of them. Even the happiest, most wealthy, most well-to-do, there are certain hardships of the mind, if not even of the body, that even, they, that even people like that endure. It's a fact, and it's a truth. Else, rich people would never commit suicide. And that happens. You've, you've read of it. You've heard of it, people that have done that. I've mentioned before that, that cartoonist, his name, I don't recall. I'll have to look it up because I keep referring to him. It was such a textbook example of... of uh, of having the whole world and still being empty on the inside, you know, that successful cartoonist who killed himself because he said in his own words, uh, I am tired of trying to come up with, in, uh, in, to invent devices to make it through 24 hours of the day or to fill up 24 hours of the day. I mean, what an indictment against the so-called successful life that people spend their whole lives chasing after. Jesus says, bring it to me. You're lonely, bring it to me. You're hungry, bring it to me. You're uh, dealing with some kind of a crisis in your life, bring it to me. You're just burdened down with 
with the burden of living and getting by from day to day. He says, bring it to me. Now, what did he say there? Well, well what he didn't say here is, you know, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and, uh, and I'll solve all your problems with the wave of a hand. You know, I'll do that little I dream of genie nose thing and it'll, blink, all your problems are gone and your bank account's overflowing and you have the biggest house that you could want or the smallest house that you would want or whatever. You know, that's not what he says. What he promises I will give you rest. Just come to me, all, the, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Burdens are wearisome. Talk to somebody who lives in chronic pain. Talk to somebody who's dealing with either a terminal or a, uh, a chronic illness and the best that they can do is manage it. It is exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. That's why people that, that get to a certain age and beyond and begin you know, dealing with the ravages of old age, it's, why, uh, a lot of them, it's one reason why a lot of them nap a lot. You know, they don't sleep very well at night. That doesn't help. And, you know, and then they nap a lot during the day because they got to get rest wherever they can. There's things that start to fail and quit and break down. And then there's other people as well that are because of an illness or because of an injury. They're dealing with chronic pain and it just never goes away. Back pain's one of the worst. It's one of the worst because that's the, that's the whole axis of everything that on, everything on your frame hangs on is on your back. And so you talk to somebody with chronic back pain, they're always exhausted. They're always tired. They're always bone weary because pain is exhausting and suffering is exhausting. What Jesus promises is rest. And sometimes he grants that rest in body, but a lot of times he grants that rest in mind and in soul. Mind and soul. He says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Well, who's, who labors and is heavy laden? Everybody. Everybody, even the one who thinks they've got it made and they've got nothing better to do with their life but to level up on some game on their Xbox. There is still a burden that they're, that they're bearing. A lot of times it's an existential burden. I know that this deals with philosophy and all of that, but it's an existential burden because people that do not know God don't even know why they're on the earth. And so that's a burden on their mind and on their conscience as well. Well, that's something to bring to Jesus also. Ye who are burdened, labor and are heavy laden, bring it to Jesus. He says, I will give you rest. And then what he offers to do is to give you a better yoke. See, because the answer isn't, the answer to the human condition isn't in removing all of our struggles and our trials. And that, this is right where we need to be tonight. The answer to the human condition isn't in removing our suffering. It's not that. It really isn't that. Humankind was made for labor. We really were. We were, we were given the kinds of bodies that we were, and the, the kinds of bodies that we have, isn't, that's not a result of the curse. Now, the kind of work that we have to do, that's, probably, that's a result of the curse. You know, we had it made in paradise, but Adam still had a job to do, didn't he? And Eve would have had a job to do if they'd have gotten busy like they were commanded to and started having kids right there in the garden instead of waiting until they got thrown out. You know, maybe things could have taken a different turn. Maybe Eve would have realized a greater degree of responsibility in her life when suddenly she had uh, two or three little ones to take care of and she wouldn't have been so idle as to listen to the serpent. So 
The answer is not to remove our burdens. The answer is to bear the right burdens. Does that make sense? It's to bear the right burdens. And this ties so nicely into, in, into what we've been talking about lately as far as individual responsibility, Christian responsibility, and, and, and letting adolescent Christianity give way to adult Christianity and all these things as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of God and grow in our relationship with God and begin to pick up more individual Christian responsibility in our Christian lives. And that may, that may not be much more than what a person's already doing, going to your job, earning a living, taking care of your family, or whatever, you're just doing it now as a believer, but there are certain other things that come along with it too. Are you prepared to bear witness Or are we still uncomfortable sharing our faith with somebody? Just a thought. The answer to the human condition is in bearing the right burden, as opposed to having all burdens lifted away. Now, there's some burdens, yes, that need to be uh, cast off, yokes that need to be broken, yokes of bondage, yokes of addiction, uh, yokes of... Um, you know, you, well, you could say bad habits, but I'm not trying to make it sound like a bad habit is necessarily a sin, okay? Because eating late at night is a bad habit. It doesn't mean that it's a sin. It's just unwise. It does things that, that aren't good to your body. But um, there are some burdens, yes, that need to be lifted, and Jesus will lift those burdens. But the burdens that remain on your back, they take on a new perspective and a new purpose. Uh, I'm thinking of a man right now. Now, he had health problems. He had, he had a variety of health problems. He was a friend of my father's, and, 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 and in the end, I counted him as a dear friend even to myself. Uh, even though I didn't get to interact with him a whole lot, he, lives in, he lived in a whole other state of the union. Jim Logan had a variety of health problems, not the least of which was diabetes. And then there were other health problems that he had as a result of that. I think there were heart problems. I think there were some other things that were going wrong. And then, you know, and, and then... You know, it would be funny if it hadn't have been fatal. But there was, you know, the, the indignation of being on a certain kind of medication and forgetting that you can never eat grapefruit when you're on it. Because there's something in grapefruit and grapefruit juice that interacts with that medication and it ultimately killed him dead. It took several weeks. But that, was it months? That's right, it did take months, didn't it? Because it was up and down and recovery was on and off and all of that. But, but ultimately, it, it, it just shut his whole body down and he ended up dying. But in that state of affliction, I mean, and it, and it was a hard road. It wasn't like, oh, I ate this and now I'm just laying in bed for a few months and then I die. No, it, it, it was not a comfortable, smooth ride out of this life. It really was not. Okay, but Jim Logan was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a believer to his bones. He really was. And uh, in fact, he was instrumental in getting my father back into church, which was a blue-eyed miracle because that was something I didn't know if it was ever going to happen again. But, you know, Jim was instrumental in that. But anyway, he, he had eaten some grapefruit or drank some grapefruit juice or something like that and had an almost immediate effect on his body. Passed out, injured himself on the way down, lost a lot of blood. Um, got him patched up, but you know, then the internal damage was all there from the interaction bet between the medication and, and, and the food itself or the, the juice itself, whichever it was. And, and it, began to, it began to afflict and to afflict and to afflict. And then finally, over the space of several months, he was in and out of the hospital. He, he landed in the hospital and then he was in hospice. And in his last few days alive, he knew he was on his way out. He knew this was curtains. 
He was in the home stretch. It was either going to be hours or days. What did he do? He spent that time witnessing to the staff at his hospital. He spent that time talking to them about Jesus and praying with some of them for salvation. There were people born again while this man was dying. That burden that he, that he had borne, that the, the illness that he had to begin with, he had borne for years. But now it was dying time. It took on a whole different perspective. And he redeemed that time in a way that few people ever get to redeem that time. And it was a wonderful thing and it was a beautiful thing. So Jesus says here, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. He said, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. That's what he promises. Rest unto your souls. Well, what kind of rest is that? Anxiety departs. Fear of the unknown, or fear in a lot of cases in general, departs. Um, Anxiety, we already mentioned that. Anxiety, fear, you know, various neuroses, I guess. Self-esteem issues a lot of times. When you're a child of the king, where is there any room for problems with self-esteem? Really, when you're a child of God who loves God and God loves you and, and He's working in you and making you better, you know, it, it, even if you're new and you've still got a long way to go in the faith, no worries. You're better than you ever were before. You're a better human being than you ever were before. So self low self-esteem, that needs to go. That needs to die. Just put a bullet in the head of that thing and bury it and say, I don't need your problems anymore. God has saved me and I'm something better than I ever have been by His grace, not by my own works. And so things like that. Rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. That's something that people live and die their whole lives without ever getting. They're in constant turmoil on the inside. There's no peace inside of them. Jesus promises that. And so, what I want to put out there tonight for us to take away, and we're going to conclude this in just a few moments, okay? What I want to put out there tonight is, if you're not at rest in your soul, why? Why? I'm not talking about going through a temporary period of turmoil because of some recent upset or even a tragedy in your life. There's going to be periods when you don't seem to have any rest, but, um, but that rest, ultimately, it always returns. But if you're in the midst of some kind of long-term thing, and you don't have rest in your soul, it's time to do some self-examination. It's time to turn the inward eye and examine the heart and the mind and examine the relationship with God and find out, okay, and, and ask that question. I was talking with, with Sister the other night about a particular verse, um, uh, I think it was from David. I know it was in the Psalms. I tend to attribute all of the Psalms to David, but you know, just because the majority of them were. So therefore, they must have all been, right? Well, no, they weren't. Actually, quite a few were written by other people, but there was a question that he asked, the psalmist asked, why art, why art thou disquieted, O my soul? You know, it's like, it's like he was under some kind of storm cloud, some kind of funk, some sort of Something was over his head and he couldn't identify why it was. And so, but becoming cognizant of it, he asked himself the question, Hey, why am I unhappy? Why am I ill at ease? Why am I discontented? 
Why? He was examining himself. And we do well to do that. I mean, there's such a thing as too much self-examination, but, but you know, a Christian needs to be good at self-examination. You really do. You, you don't live in it, but you, you have to be adept at it and practice it. Practice examining our own motives for the things that we do, especially when we, do something that, when we may do something that is wrong, that is against the Word of God. Does that make sense? So, like a person who uh, may we'll attribute this to a, maybe a, a brand new Christian, you know, is, has a habit of lying from the old life and is working on not doing that. And so they tell a lie, okay, and then they think, well, why did I do that? And they actually stop. They don't just hit the floor and repent. And, but they want to know why they did that. Because sometimes to get to the bottom of your own motivations and, and why we do things, you have to sit there and examine why. And in order to do that, you have to be absolutely honest with yourself. Absolute self-honesty is, is a foundation stone of the spiritual life. You've got to. Because when you're not honest with yourself, even if you never lie to anybody else, but you only lie to yourself, you're still indulging in deceit. And deceit distorts the whole world. Does that make sense? Lies are incredibly destructive because they create illusions for other people. And then they're living lives based on illusions. We know what, that, what happens when you have that. You know, best case scenario, it's like a mirage in the desert and you thought you were getting water and just a mouthful of sand like... Daffy Duck, I never forgot that cartoon. That was old school. He dove into that patch of, dove into that cool blue pond, and it was sand. And he was gobbling up all this sand, and he was spitting it out. Well, then he was enlightened. Anyway, it didn't help. Lies, even lies to the self, they contribute to the greater problems that erode and then destroy the world. And so, what he says here is, you got burdens, bring them to me, Jesus says. And I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest for your soul. And that's something that nobody out there, no tech company, no bank, no, no, other, no person, no spouse, girlfriend, or one night stand, okay? No bottle, no anything out there in the world can give someone rest for their soul. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And he concludes saying, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light okay now that's worthy of a lot of examination we're not going to indulge in tonight just for the sake of time we're not going to pick it up next week either that's one i'm going to put that out there and say examine ye what that means now jesus never lies jesus never lies and so when he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That means that it's easy and that it's light. And certainly compared to the burden of sin, yes, that's one way of looking at it. It's certainly easy and light compared to the burden of sin because the burden of sin ultimately lands a soul in damnation. Okay? But it means more than just that. And so that's something to meditate on. So my burden feels heavy right now. Okay? Then it's time to ask why. It's time to examine the condition of the heart, find out why that's there. But remember, soul-crushing burdens don't come from Jesus. Soul-crushing burdens don't come from Jesus. They come from the world. They come from the sin, the, from sin, the devil, the world, from, flesh, from the flesh, from all of that. Jesus' burden is easy. And it's light. 
And so we take that yoke upon us. There's a lot of stuff we don't have to carry anymore. There's a lot of stuff we don't have to carry anymore. And even the things that we do carry, they're going to be lighter and they're going to be better. And one reason they're going to be better is because they're going to mean something that they never meant before. They're going to have a purpose where before it was just dumb suffering under the curse. Well, not anymore. The things we endure now, light or seemingly heavy, and sometimes it is heavy, really, admittedly it is, but the things that we endure now, whether light or heavy, they have a meaning and a purpose that they do not have out in the world. They have a meaning and a purpose in our life for God that the sinner cannot claim and does not possess. They're suffering under the curse. We are not. Not anymore. And let's go ahead and stop it there. That's the end of chapter 11. We finally made it. and We're done here. Now, next week, we may be in chapter 12. I'm, I'm thinking about, we'll be praying about a different Bible study that involves the spiritual gifts because there's some time when you just have to get off of the long lesson to cover a more immediate need. And so that might be up coming up next week. We'll see what the Lord wants. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.